Good morning. It's good to see you all again in, in a relatively short uh, break in between. Sometimes it's longer from when I'm here from one time to the next, so it's good to be back. It's great to see Ned here smiling and hearing him pray, so praise the Lord. Uh, while I'm getting set up, please turn with me to Psalm 99. We're going to be looking at Psalm 99 this morning. We're going to be talking about praising the Lord for his holiness, and we're going to be talking about your holy king. Sometimes it takes some work to introduce the text, but not really this morning, because we've heard this already throughout the service in the hymn of Holy, 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 in Psalm 29, in singing a psalm version of Psalm 99 about God being the holy king. Psalm 99 is part of a group of psalms starting in 93 and running through Psalm 100 that talk about the kingship of the Lord our God. These psalms call for joyous praise, awe and reverence, obedience. They call for worship. They call for celebrating the king on the throne of the universe. They lead us to praise God for his holiness. For example, in Psalm 98, the one before 99 that we'll be looking at, it's very festive. It calls worshipers to make a joyful noise, to break forth into joyous song, to shout joyfully before their king. It even uses images of things in nature worshiping. The sea roars, the rivers clap, and the hills sing for joy. It is festive and it encourages us to celebrate and worship the king. And then our pas passage, Psalm 99, encourages us to praise the Lord for his holiness and to look, what is that world? What are the rivers? What are the seas? What are the hills that are singing for joy? Looking at, what is it about? It is about your holy king. Have you ever been around a famous person in public? Can you picture the reaction of the crowds as the famous person comes through in their presence? What is your reaction? Some people get excited and shake, cheer. Some people might freeze up and get nervous. Is that really them? Maybe, the, maybe in the crowd, the people start cheering and others join in. The presence of the famous person evokes the reaction of clapping and yelling and cheering. I saw this in a Dallas hotel some years ago during the MTW Global Missions Conference. No, it wasn't for a famous missionary going through. It wasn't for any of the conference keynote speakers. <laughs> Rather, there was a professional soccer team from Mexico staying at the hotel because they were having an exhibition game in uh, Dallas. And a famous soccer player, their star player and their leader he drew all the attention. When he came through the hotel, it's like everybody knew. There was many people there to see the team, and they all knew. And when he came through, the crowds would gather and kind of wait as he walked through. 
The other players weren't that popular. Some of them could walk by. I even asked, what's going on? Who is that? To one of the players. But the star, when he walked by, all the focus, all the attention, it all went to him. And that pattern repeated throughout the weekend. Whenever he was moving about the hotel, there was that sense of awe. The crowds gathered to cheer, to see their hero, to see their team leader. Well, our psalm does this for us in a, in a way this morning. The cheering in Psalm 98 becomes something in 99 that now we are directed to. The king, the holy king that we are to praise for his holiness and to worship. And it's helpful that we have a pattern in the psalm, a repeating pattern that works to do this, to get our attention, to point us to what we should do and how we should respond. So listen as I read the psalm and try to notice the pattern and the call to praise the Lord for his holiness. Psalm 99, this is God's word. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Shall we pray? Blessed are you, our holy King. Blessed are you, eternal God, worthy of praise now and forever. You have spoken in the past. And your people have been guided through all kinds of wildernesses. You've supported them in all kinds of exiles and afflictions. And so we ask that you would speak to us today. Speak to us this morning in the midst of our own confusion and affliction. Lord, speak to us through your holy word. Give us a sense of order and direction and hope and faith. And speak to us through your gospel. Transform us by your grace and renew us in hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, did you notice the pattern in the psalm? Similar to a modern song with verses and refrains, you can hear a couple of verses and then the repetition, he is holy, he is holy, for the Lord our God is holy. We hear of his holiness, this holiness of the king three times. Perhaps it reminds you of the hymn that we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy. Or from Revelation 4, where the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, 
holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Not resting, day and night, holy, holy, holy. So can you see the pattern? The psalm is doing the same thing for us in our text. And if you look a little more closely, you'll see that within this pattern, that there is a couple of verses that give reasons to give praise, reasons to exalt the Lord, and then the call that summons to praise the Lord, ending in the phrase, he is holy, or the Lord our God is holy. And so that's the pattern that we'll use to look at this psalm in three sections this morning. Three reasons to praise the Lord as your holy king. In verses 1 to 3, we'll see that he is great, that we should praise him for his greatness. In verses 4 and 5, we'll take a look at his rule, that it's perfect and we should praise him for his government. In verses 6 to 9, we see that he hears and answers, he forgives and avenges those who do not deserve the forgiveness, so we can praise him for his grace. God's message for you this morning is that you have a holy king to praise and exalt for his holiness, for his greatness, his perfect government, and as it all comes together in the gospel, most importantly, his grace toward you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider first your holy king's greatness. This is the first thing that's revealed here is his greatness, his power, his authority over everyone and everything. Look how it's described in verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. The Lord reigns, that is, he is a king on his throne, ruling over all people, with a jurisdiction over all places and authority over everything. We can see his greatness in his reign, on the throne, his power. And we must look. It says the Lord reigns. Don't pass by it too quickly. Who is this king that reigns? It is the Lord. In the New King James here, the capital L-O-R-D, to remind us, Adonai, Yahweh, Jehovah, that I am, it's the covenant name. That covenant name that just two weeks ago we looked at his loving kindness forever towards us. That's the king. This king is holy. He's set apart, perfect, all light, no darkness, no stain, self-sufficient. And the people recognizing this fear him, they should tremble. Because he actively rules. He's present and presides over his kingdom and judges within his kingdom righteously. Well, specifically here, where does it say he dwells? It says he dwells between the cherubim in verse 1. These supernatural creatures, sounding like the living creatures that we just described, worshiping 24-7, holy, holy, holy. They first appear in the book of Genesis when they blocked the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve's sin. And they were part of the design prominent in the earthly tabernacle of Moses in the Old Testament. Can you picture where the cherubim appeared there? 
maybe in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're reminded of the earthly sanctuary, which points us to the heavenly sanctuary, where we read, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And then what was above that? Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Here was a visible sign and a proof to Israel that the living God dwelled among them. And at the same time, it pointed them to the spiritual and the heavenly rule that surrounded God surrounded by all the host of heaven. And it's a reminder for us today that God is present with, with us and he dwells among us in the church. And this king rules over all. It says he is great in Zion, kind of saying he's great in the capital of his rule, yet is over all the people. Now, if I was to ask you, Especially after this week, if we think about what's Washington, D.C., you, of course, would say it's the capital of the United States. It's where the main seats of government are for our nation and where the highest officials rule. Well, Zion then symbolizes God's throne, where the highest of all officials rule. Because the United States has borders. The leaders, their power has a boundary, doesn't it? If we go to Europe, we can't say, because of the leaders in Washington, you have to do this. But they have their own leaders. They have their own boundary. The European Union could say, no, we look to Brussels, not Washington, D.C. But the good news is there is no boundary for this ruler this morning. No boundary for our God. And what is the response for the people of the earth? They should fear. Let the people tremble. Let the be earth be moved. The people shaking, the earth quaking, all people fearing him, giving him the reverence and awe due to him. Let everything fear because they are under the authority of the all-powerful king. We also know of God's power from the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah compared idols to the living God, the holy God, in chapter 10, where he writes, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He reminds us that the King has jurisdiction and authority over all the earth, over all peoples, Everything was created by him, and he has authority over all of it. So God is presented to you this morning as the Lord, the covenant Lord, the King, majestic in his greatness. And what should we do? We should praise his great and awesome name, verse 3, for he is holy. Now maybe it sounds straightforward, almost simple, doesn't it seem obvious? And for the Christian, we quickly jump to say, yes, of course. 
But the thing is, in our fallen natures, we don't always want to worship God as king. Sometimes we don't even want a king at all. In fact, too often our thoughts and actions show that we wish that we could be the king of our lives. Or maybe we think we are the king of our lives. We know it started in the garden with Adam and Eve. We know it's continued with every generation, and it continues to this day. We know that without God as king, this rebellion brings us into a state of sin and misery. Who is the king of your life? What rules your life? If Christ is not the king, that's the human condition, sin and misery. Because it's the holy God who reigns. He's the one with all the power, all the authority, and we should tremble before him. He is the king that brings people out of sin and misery and into the state of salvation. So we should celebrate and look to him. Listen to how it's described in the book of Daniel. King Darius saw Daniel defeated, judged, and put into the den of lions, didn't he? Here himself, a powerful king, had seen Daniel survive that experience. And this is his response. This is what he says. This is what he decrees in Daniel chapter 6, in verses 26 and 27. King Darius says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, the one who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. The good news is that there is such a king that reigns forever, the one who delivers, the one who rescues, the one who saves. Jesus Christ is the true king with this greatness. He is your holy king, enthroned and reigning forever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. This is how it came about. He came to earth, took on flesh, and lived a sinless life. Yet he was crucified. He died on the cross and rose again, conquering the grave, ascending into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father as King of Kings. Is Jesus your holy King? God is calling you this morning to recognize him as King, to recognize your holy King's greatness and trust in him, to believe in him, give him your loyalty. And so we praise his great and awesome name. And it leads us to consider what this king is like, how he governs. In other words, okay, we have a king. What about his kingdom? What about his rule? What is it like? The next two verses, verses 4 and 5, show us 
the way he rules and the way he governs. So this is the second thing we want to consider. Praise him for his holiness. Praise him for his perfect government. What kind of government does he have in those verses? Is it one of corruption? Is it one of oppression? Is it one of evil? Is it a, is it a desire to retain power by putting everyone else down? No, not at all. What does God's word say? It tells us in verse, verses 4 and 5. The king's strength also loves justice. Again, the psalmist speaks directly now, not about God, but to God. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. What does he love? Justice. What does he establish? Equity. How does he rule? In righteousness. Once again, turning to Jeremiah for perspective on this. He wrote about this as well. In, I quoted Jeremiah chapter 10, one just before that, at the end of chapter 9, in verse 23 and 24, he says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, in the Lord speaking, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What a beautiful description of his government. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, and delighting in these things. The way that God rules and the way he governs was important to the psalmist to include it here in Psalm 99. It's important to Jeremiah. These are important things in our day for us, too. In fact, our news is, is frankly dominated by issues of justice. Current events regularly contain discussions of equity. Here is the truth of it. In our scriptures, in the word of God. And so this discussion becomes a good thing. It's good that these things are important because they can point us to Christ. In Jesus Christ, you have a holy king to be praised for his perfect rule. His government that is just, equitable, and righteous. And can you think of how this presents an opportunity to you in your day-to-day -day life, interacting with others? When you hear people talking about equity and justice, you can point them to Christ, because that's where they'll be satisfied and find the truth. They will desire these things, but they will not find it. They will not fully achieve it outside of Christ. The summons here in verse 5 is to respond with worship at his footstool. It is a symbol of the Lord on his throne with power and authority and one humbled coming before the throne at his footstool. It is a symbol of his power compared to the others.
And that means that you can come to him for justice and mercy. You can go to that throne for justice and mercy and find forgiveness. If the government of your holy king is like that, it reminds you to show mercy and justice to one another. In the church, in your job, at your job, your family, your neighborhood, or school, all those places where you're part of a community. If our holy king is characterized by this type of perfect government, that becomes the desire for us in the church too. So watch for opportunities and recognize needs for Christ's government this week. Look for ways to be just and merciful like your holy king. Well, not only do we praise the Lord for his greatness and his government, but now we come to the third and final reason in our psalm to praise God for his grace. Turn your attention to verses 6 through 9. One of the things you may notice quickly in, in uh, verse 6 are the names of Old Testament characters. Three names are given. We see Moses and Aaron and Samuel, three important Bible figures. But before we look at those, we'll talk in a second about why they're here. There's a more important name listed, a name of God in verse 8. Do you see it? The God who forgives. Verse 8 says, You answered them, O Lord our God, you were to them God who forgives. That is literally the God who lifts up. The picture is someone who has been humbled, down, defeated, judged, flattened to the ground. And that is the one that gets lifted up and set back on their feet. The one down, calling for mercy. And the one with the power to do whatever he wants lifts them up. The God who forgives. They, they're lifted up in forgiveness. And now we can think of the Old Testament examples that go along with Moses and Aaron and Samuel where this thing happened for the people of Israel. What do these things have in common? Why are they in our psalm? Well, they all speak of intercession. A mediator coming between God and the people that deserve judgment. They're all examples of times when a prophet or a priest prayed or made atonement for the people of Israel in a time of trouble and judgment. And they were forgiven. Moses interceded for the people that the wrath of God would not be brought upon them after the golden calf incident. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 32. You can also look to number 16 where Moses and Aaron made atonement for the rebellious people. They intercede to stop a plague. And so too Samuel interceded when Israel had fallen away from the true God gone off into idolatry, worshiping idols. In 1 Samuel 1.7, Israel is about to be defeated, punished by the, at the hands of the Philistines in war. But Samuel intercedes. 
when the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, Samuel had been interceding. And the response of the Lord, the answer to his prayers, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Israel looking for sure to be defeated, rescued, delivered, and saved, and victorious. In these examples, we find the all-powerful king who loves justice. He will hear the cries for mercy from an undeserving people through a mediator. That is the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. It is most fully realized in the good news of Jesus Christ. The psalm calls us to worship at this throne and to ask for mercy at this throne. But there, there is an issue with doing that that we, we can't miss. There's not a checklist that we can do so that we can come before the throne. There's not works that we can do that we feel is good enough and strong enough to come and stand before the throne of God. How can you come before the throne of God? How can you worship a king in this holiness, who is this just, who cannot be near sin, who has to punish it? Sinners need a mediator. And like Israel in trouble for their wrongdoing, we all need a mediator. And the good news is that we know that Jesus Christ is the true mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It is Jesus who intercedes for those who have placed their trust in him before God's throne of grace. He mediates for us, much like a defense attorney mediating for a client, telling the judge, Your Honor, my client is innocent of all charges against him. That is true for us, as we heard in the assurance of pardon today. One day we will face God, and if we have repented, if we have turned from our sin, if we have forsaken our selfish ways and trusted him for salvation and life, when you face God, you will do so with your sins forgiven, your wrongdoing avenged. It's all because of Jesus' death on your behalf. And he calls you to live a holy life in worship and service to him. Well, that covers the whole psalm. Israel had a throne with one king would come, and another would come after that, and another, would this be the Messiah? And then finally, Christ, the eternal king, came. And that's where we see God's greatness. And that's where we really know God's perfect government. And that's where we know the amazing grace. It all comes together in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Well, I just want to go back to Hebrews 9, where I talked about the mercy seat. The sprinkled blood on the mercy seat atoned for Israel's sins. 
And one Christian teacher described the mercy seat this way. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come. Christ did come, and Christ did make the sacrifice, and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistake about it, these are historical realities. The tabernacle was real, the Ark of the Covenant was real, the mercy seat was real, and so the cross was real too. So true was the empty tomb real. And he continues, Christ is our mercy seat. There, in and through Christ, God meets us. The dots are connected. My friends, you have a holy king to praise and exalt for his greatness. This week, for his government, and most importantly, his grace toward you in Jesus Christ. That's where you can be connected to the God of the universe, ruling on his holy throne. So this week, remember to praise him for his holiness and to pray without ceasing, recognizing who you are praying to and the access you have before his throne through your union with Christ. Well, let's begin that this week, praying without ceasing by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for your greatness. We praise you for your perfect government. We praise you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who forgives. Help us this week to meditate upon the word that we've heard, to understand it clearly, and to apply what we have received, that your name would be glorified, and it would be for our good, and that your gospel would go forth. Bless each one this week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.